For November 25th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 595. Childhood is not a movie for kids. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your neighbors from your neighborhood. We're never happier than when we're sitting together having a beautiful day. And since we're together, we might as well say, will you be my, will you be my, won't you be my podcaster? Pete Fenzel, please won't you be my podcaster? (laughs) Of course, always, man. And uh, Mark Lee, please won't you be my podcaster? Uh, any day, any time, Matt. And I am Matt Rather. I am taking off the proverbial blue blazer, putting on the proverbial <laughs> zippered cardigan, taking off my proverbial penny loafers, and putting on my proverbial sneakers. Hello, neighbor. You know, when I sit at the microphone, I think of speaking through this microphone into the ear of one podcast listener. I actually wonder what that would be like. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny? I mean, think, think about that for a second. Sorry, I'm going down a rat hole. Think of if you had like me, Pete and Mark walking alongside you as you go about your day and just speaking to you in sort of hushed tones, uh, into your, into your ear. That would be weird, wouldn't it? It would also make it, it like difficult to get on the bus or the subway or something. Cause you'd have to pay for four people. Right. It would no longer be a podcast, um, which is uh, actually actually very relevant to this movie and how it's constructed, right? And how um, Mr. Rogers is not um, speaking to us, quote unquote, directly. It's all mediated through the screen. Yeah, it, it well, right. it is, and and so and like and like rendered in four by three aspect ratio and four eighty p as it would have appeared on television in nineteen ninety eight, as opposed to like you know full cinema quality. Well, yeah, they do they do a couple things. It's gosh, it, it is a it is a super interesting movie, and I guess the the thing I I I just the the kind of point I was trying to make with that sort of extended fantasia on uh, uncomfortably creepy uh, podcasters podcast for one following you around is that like podcasting does one of the things that people say about the medium as it sort of continues to blow up and people continue to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in it and that the sort of advertising market for it goes from just the uh you know the direct mail people like razors and mattresses to uh, not mail the direct marketing people i should say like razors and mattresses to like brand advertisers like car companies is that like it creates an incredible amount of intimacy with between the podcaster and uh and the listener right like i'm sure if you've listened to us for the almost 600 episodes that we've made of the overthinking podcast or any small part of that even you have a feeling like like you know us and that that to to some extent you have a a relationship with us now that relationship is not one that we necessarily share in quite the same way that you have it but it is a, a legit um relationship and and mr rogers somehow was able to create relationships like that however mediated through technology and it was sort of an it was sort of an interesting uh it was sort of an interesting thing to see how they go about talking about that uh or you know depicting it in a film the film is a is not a biopic uh and it's not strictly speaking a a, a narrative film it's it's kind of like a um 
uh, it's kind of like a magical realist film essay uh, that involves a magazine writer doing a profile of Mr. Rogers. That's the action. That's the unity of action in, in this film. Also, his, uh, his father gets sick, played by, by Chris Cooper, and the, the magazine writer played by uh, Matthew Reese, who is the, uh, the husband from The Americans. And, the uh, same character. Yeah. Same universe. Yep. Should it I? takes <laughs> does take place in the Americans universe. So he is actually passing messages to the Russians uh all the time. That's why he always has a little tape recorder with him. But the um the uh it uses it uses a lot of kind of theatricality. It uses a lot of uh the kind of magic realist elements where like at one point he imagines himself in um he imagines himself in the land of make believe and it it also I will say it's a film that I spent about 90% of it racked with sobs. Oh, yeah. um, like, uh, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, um, like really stop crying for, so, so I had, I had all the feels and I think that like, to, sorry, I'll, I'll yield the floor in just a second, but we reach for allegory you know, we reach for metaphor, we reach for a sort of poetic abstraction of various kinds. We reach for ulteriority when we're trying to tell a truth that is, is somehow too powerful or too threatening to tell, um, in a, a straightforward way. And I think that, well, I, I have an idea about what that, that truth is, uh, in the case of, of this movie, but I, I guess I just, I, I wonder maybe where you guys want to, uh, you guys want to, to jump in. Pete, do you feel like the form of this film was related to, uh, the kind of the, the thematic, the emotional, the kind of the human content uh, of it, or was it sort of pretty window dressing for you? No, I felt like the form felt pretty, at the very least deliberate yeah tightly integrated right right yeah and i will add that i also cried for about 90 percent of this movie and the people sitting next to me brought children aged like 7 to 15 like four kids and i was sitting next to an 11 year old child who was also like audibly sobbing for like long extensions of this movie. oh jeez this is not a movie for kids. In fact, even before we go any farther into it, you might not really know what this movie is. is yeah, like. but I mean, you know what? Childhood, chi- childhood is not a movie for kids. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. Matthew? Matt? Yes? I really appreciate how you said that. Oh, thank you. I Pete. really did. That The way that you were saying that um, childhood is not a movie for kids. But, like, on one hand, I want to respond to it because it sounds clever. But on the other hand it really does feel like you hit something there that, that makes a difference. And I'm grateful for you. Grateful to you for that. And I, pre- See, I really, Pete, I, I, I grew, I grew up in a family, Pete, where even sincerity was wielded as an emotional weapon. And so I am <laughs> ill-equipped to deal oh, 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 with oh. kindness of any sort. Excuse, I'm just going to go cry for 90% of this podcast. <laughs> Please continue without me. So, so. <laughs> So this is a very serious movie. <laughs> that, that, I feel like I have to put a, a, a pretty a big disclaimer on this. This is not a fun, feel-good Mr. Rogers biopic. This is a very serious movie about grief, mental anguish, and death. 
Uh, and it is it is incredibly comforting and very nice, but incredibly intense. Uh, and so I really feel like uh, the various hot takes of like, well, Tom Hanks doesn't really look like Mr. Rogers. I, I don't think I've it's rare that you see a run up to a movie that is that far outside of the point. Right? Like everyone's like, oh, yeah, the big problem with this movie is whether Tom Hanks looks like Tom Hanks or looks like Mr. Rogers or not. And it's like, no, the big issue with this movie is the cluster bomb that it drops in the middle of your soul. Right. Like just spreading out fanning out over every vulnerable element of your mountainous <laughs> you think adequately defended personal position um but yeah no I, in terms of form right one of my favorite moments in the movie and actually my wife and i disagreed about what it was about and i think she was right um and i can i can hear her walking by the room as hearing me say that but uh, um was that was when mr rogers played by Tom Hanks, in a, in a remarkable performance just because he's able to imbue the character with this level of, of distance and intimacy that's sort of confounding, just utterly confounding, uh, and presenting that to the audience. When they're sitting in a Chinese brunch place, right, like a dumpling house or a dim sum place, like a sort of Chinese diner, and um, and and Mr. Rogers is talking with the magazine reporter, and what they do is they dramatize as an intimate personal conversation, something that Mr. Rogers did at the daytime Emmys when he received a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is pose the question to the audience to sit in stillness for a moment. In real life, he did it on TV and asked them for 10 seconds. In this movie, he asks for a full minute. And think about all the people that loved you into being, right? Um, and the disagreement was, you know, I was thinking, oh, he wants me to think about all the people going back generations who had sex so that I exist. And I was like, no, it's about all the people who loved you as a kid and like helped you grow up. Right. Like it's, it's not this kind of, uh, you know, uh, desert of the real. <laughs> now my wife is poking her head in the room and, and smiling at me. Um, but at any rate, you have to understand if you've seen the movie, you know this already. This exercise, right, pulls out and, and it cuts around the restaurant. And you see all these old people who are all participating in the exercise because they're eavesdropping on Mr. Rogers because, of course, they are. And everybody is kind of quietly thinking in silence about all the people that loved them into being. For most of these people, those people are dead, right? And that's important to the way that the movie works. And then there's this amazing moment where Tom Hanks just looks directly at the camera for for what seems like a million years, just oh, like directly at huh. you. It's probably wow. about fifteen seconds. Yeah, right? he looks Something into he looks into the lens. It was it was pretty jarring. Oh yes, it was. It was definitely jarring. It was super intense. It felt very avant-garde sort of trying to use the medium in a way that I hadn't seen before. I mean, certainly there have been other times where people just look directly at the camera. Uh, but uh, but the way that this philosophical notion that mattered so much to Mr. Rogers, this idea of contemplative silence in a world of stimulative media and constant buzz and no dead air is uh, and him forcing you to endure that in the theater. It just felt very powerful. And so this is the kind of movie that seeks out those kinds of moments. Um, the other big one for me is the very end where this, there's this wonderful little sequence that you can read in a whole bunch of different ways, I'm sure, where Mr. Rogers, which he would do in real life, apparently, when a taping was closing up, he would play on the piano. And this was kind of the sig signal to everybody to, uh, to that the filming was wrapped and everybody should go home. 
and he sits at this piano and, and he's playing the piano and the land of make-believe miniatures are kind of sprawled out around him and also the sort of neighborhood miniatures. Uh, he's and, and also the sort of fixtures of steel and rigging that make the show happen around him, which also kind of recalls the fact that this is Pittsburgh in an era where, you know, I mean, in, in this case, it's still pretty post-industrialized, but he's kind of recalling an older age of Pittsburgh and what the city means. And there's this there's this just giant light that is shining down from the sky onto Mr. Rogers. And there's the blue walls, right, which are mentioned in the actual real life article that the movie is based off of. Um, and it's it's this sort of constructed idea of a world of, of a of a world of the living, a sort of simulacrum of the world of the living that has been made kind of controllable and performable. And Mr. Rogers is kind of playing piano under it. And 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 you get the sense that something he's seen in the most recent take that was filmed has upset him. And he starts doing the thing that he talks about early in the movie where he expresses his anger by banging on the low keys and the keyboard, right? Which he says, well, how do you how do you express? How do you when you are upset? What do you do? And he's like, oh, there's lots of things that you can do. And you can you can play all the keys low on the keyboard at the same time. Like, bong, um, rather than, say, yell at people or Hit punch, them, right? punch your father at a wedding. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so there's this moment where Mr. Rogers is playing the music and then there's like a couple of loud bongs on the low end of the piano and then the light goes out. And and then there's just the walls as you hear the piano play off into the into the dist, into the sort of credits. And, and it struck me so powerfully, especially after reading the article that the movie is based off of, which I highly recommend. Um in that Mr. Rogers was colorblind and probably even more than conventionally colorblind and couldn't tell that the walls were blue. Right. So like so he has these blue walls and, and he says in the article, I imagine the walls are blue. And you have to think that they're referencing this in this shot. Right. Uh, that Mr. Rogers has created this world where he imagines that there are blue walls. And then there's this moment of kind of the end of the light. Right. The the end of the sun. And this is a whole movie that's about death. And and so it's sort of like happy music, happy music, happy music. Brief moment of bang, 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 bang of like of like sadness and anger and grief and then darkness. And it seemed like a powerful metaphor. And then and then what endures after is the walls. Right. And the blue that Mr. Rogers has created and the environment that he's created, but not him. He's in darkness. Right. Like the light is out and all you can see is kind of the the uh, the environment and idea of the way that a world could be that he creates through his work. And so this end for me was like really, really powerful commentary about the death of the man, Fred Rogers. Um, and I'm sure you could read it any number of other ways. The sort of the metaphorical sun, the metaphorical neighborhood, the metaphorical piano, the metaphorical walls, the metaphorical Tom Hanks, uh, who was in the movie called The Metaphorical Burbs. Or the metaphorical you've got mail. It's all metaphors all the way down. I mean, I don't know if you guys had similar or different feelings about that, but it was just a very powerful commentary on life and death and creativity and imagination and the legacy of this man yeah. in a scene with no dialogue at the end of an hour and 45 minute movie. So we're not really talking about Lawrence of Arabia or like Dr. Zhivago here, right? Like this is a pretty brisk movie that gets real intense. Um, anyway, I, I mean, I was wowed. I, I was wowed and there was just a lot to think about and and cry at and wrestle with during the whole thing. But those sorts of, to answer your question, those sorts of presentationalist elements and filmmaking and formal qualities are a big part of what makes the movie what it is. Because if you sit back and just describe the story, there's really not a lot that happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the on the head, Pete. Um, I do. Before we wrap this up, uh, want to talk about this? What you you started to get at there the the death of Mister Rogers and uh, arguably the death of his legacy, um, that of like kind of radical kindness and how that appears to be lost here in, in 2019 as this movie is coming out. But before we get there, I'm going to talk more about kind of the presentational quality of this movie. Um, I want to get at what I what I mentioned earlier on about how like uh, you know decent chunks of this movie are shot in that like 1988 TV style. I mean, even beyond that, right, you have the little model neighborhoods that serve as, you know, rather than a sweeping establishing shot of New York City or a Pittsburgh or of like a suburban neighborhood where the dad is dying, you have the models, you have it kind of in the grainy style. Um, you also have um, the really fantastical stuff about how the the author like shows up, you know, he's like, we're all, we're whole thing is framed ostensibly as in an episode, a fantastical episode of Mr. Rogers, right? And just to be clear, it's not meant to be an actual episode of this. Um, I want to just like kind of give my take on this and, and hear your reaction to this. It's kind of it's it's getting at um, trying to communicate this uh, central idea, which is really told explicitly in, in 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 the movie, which is that Mr. Rogers and Fred Rogers, i.e., the person and the character that he played on on TV, were the same and um, the experience that we have of watching the movie and watching the TV show um, is somehow able to transcend a lot of these boundaries. Like so, like it's like paradoxically making you aware of the boundaries and of the of the limitations of television, um, but at the same time uh, showing Mister Rogers' unique power to get beyond that. Um, does that sound about right? Is there anything else going on with like the grainy uh, kind of lo-fi television elements of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's about right. I I I also think it kind of creates I don't know. It sort of creates an it creates an alienation, right? Like the the right. it reminds you it reminds you the viewer of a film that the thing that you're watching is is constructed. And I, I'm I'm always surprised when when a piece of popular entertainment can be very emotional without being maudlin or or sort of uh over you know overly sentimental right and and kind of reaching for cheap uh for cheap emotion if it can kind of let the if it can kind of evoke powerful emotion without resorting to um without resorting to too many tricks you know uh, too much too much kind of like sentimental button pushing and this uh, yeah I, I think manages to do it and like w- one of the ways you know one of the ways that it manages to do it is by by sort of pulling up short a lot of your your idea of mr rogers right like what's what is honestly honestly like honestly you're with his you know delivery his sort of his uh, the the actually the actual article that it was based on and put a link in the show notes to the um esquire article that was the the inspiration for this film um it, t- it talks about he he manages to calibrate to find a voice that sounds like sounds like an adult to a child but sounds like a child to an adult right so he said he's like kind of living in this in this in between space and it's sort of not calibrated it's not meant to talk to adults if it if it is meant to talk to adults it's it's meant to talk to sort of the child inside them and that that is like um you know, not something that everyone is, is sort of willing to, uh, willing to countenance, but like you don't, you go into, or I go into, we, I think we all go into, we live in a, a media landscape and information landscape where we go into things thinking like, okay, how is this going to get effed up? Right? Like, how is this going? How, how is my hero going to be, 
how, how is my hero going to be um, ruined for me? You know, how is, I mean, to, to what people say on, on Twitter, how is, how is this going to ruin my, ruin my childhood, right? Like, oh, there's a slightly effeminate man who, like, talks to children in this, this lilting drawl. Like, oh, God, I, I can see... I can see where this story is going, right? And um, the the film is constantly reminding you of your own your own cynicism through the Matthew Reese character, right? And and sort of constantly pulling up short the idea of Mister Rogers as as a saint. And I guess, like to me, a lot of the a lot of the stuff, a lot of the television stuff, which is shot to look. Uh, to look grainy, though I think I mean not not exactly. It seems a little more colorful. I don't know if you're really to watch footage from the 70s or 80s. I, I don't think it would look like something that you wanted to put in a um, in a film. But it's it is messed around with a little bit to show the. Um, to show the the constructedness uh, of it. And the, and the other thing it does, so it has this alienating effect. It does show that like it creates a boundary between the sort of the public and the, the private man, though, as he says, fame is a four letter word, um, you know, between him and his work. Like there are a couple of, of shots of Tom Hanks sort of watching himself as Mr. Rogers perform on a monitor and sort of saying, yes, that's okay. Or no, that's not okay. Um, that, that like, uh, you know, it, it, it manages to, it manages to, to sort of de sanctify, right? It's a sort of anti hagiography. It manages to de hagiography Mr. Rogers. And like one of the, one of the best moments in the film for me was something that, that his wife said when his wife says, don't, don't call him a saint, because if you call him a saint, that makes it seem like this way of life is unattainable or that he's just, he's just, you know, born with, with some sort of, superhuman capacity to uh, do this stuff. And that's in fact, not the case, right? It's practice. He does, he does things. It's a, it's a discipline, you know, I, and now because I worked at goop for two years, I am, am, you know, inclined to be cynical about people who use the word practice. Like for example, I, I you know, worked among uh, uh, people who referred on ironically to a jade egg practice, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever that meant. But the idea that, that it is something that you do have to practice the idea that it is like in the sense that you practice an instrument and, and he was a very good piano player or practice law and that you return to this, um, over and over, you return to this discipline, you return to this, this, you know, um, area of praxis, right. Um, day in and day out. And that like that, you know, kindness, uh, compassion, um, that these things are very, that these things are very hard won. Uh, and, and Tom Hanks is good at this. Like the, the moment, um, in, after, uh, Matt has talked to the, to the wife and, and she said this to him, the moment where he, uh, Matthew Reese challenges him and says, it can't be, it can't have been easy for your kids to have grown up with you. And you can see Tom Hanks sort of take this in that it's a very bitter pill to swallow, uh, that he recognizes the truth of it, and that he sort of responds nonviolently to this question, which is 
sort of offered violently, you know, it's not like he's not trying to increase, you know, love and happiness and compassion in the world by, by, uh, asking this, but, but Mr. Rogers does the Judah move on him and makes it, uh, you know, makes it an occasion for gratitude and an occasion for, uh, for compassion. And and you can tell that it has a cost. And so, uh, sorry, Mark, this is a long way towards addressing, towards addressing your thing. I think that like another function of the grainy video, another function of a lot of the kind of the alienating moves is to desanctify, uh, Mr. Rogers and, and to kind of, uh, kind of show the cost uh of w- what it took to get this um you know to have this uh kind of compassion to have this sort of kindness as a as a practice on a daily basis yeah i'd add to what you said matt that it was it's worthwhile in the movie to consider that they actually made the set right they they re and they re- recreated the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood set, yeah. and they shot it in a way that makes it look like an episode of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, which involves a lot of really painstaking miniature work and stop motion work, which they show you over the credits, over an actual Mr. Rogers song. Uh, and that, to me, reinforces that theme that you're talking about, which is that this whole thing is something that requires a lot of patience and a lot of and a lot of doing it over and over again and work. And that it's not something that just comes effortlessly. And so the movie, in order to kind of pay homage or participate in this thesis, has to be a work of painstaking detail. And is is sort of supported by the idea that somebody actually did make a miniature Pittsburgh with like miniature cars going across a miniature bridge um, rather than just, you know, take a bunch of video and, and put it through a machine learning algorithm or something. I mean, not even, or just like take a bunch of video from a Mr. Rogers neighborhood episode and just put it in the movie, which they could have done if they wanted to, right? Like they could have just cut to actual footage. If not of Tom Hanks, they could have superimposed Tom Hanks into Mr. Rogers neighborhood episodes. Maybe they did to an extent. I don't know exactly, but it seems like a great deal of it is actual practical effects. Um, I mean, it's not, yeah. is it even practical effects when you're, creating a mise-en-scene that is representative of like an actual not even representative but is like a copy of a physical object it's just the thing that actually was yeah yeah that's a, yeah. That's a good question just a quick wheel actually what there was a stop motion insofar as like you know they repositioned an object frame by frame and shot it it was just like you know there's like a string that was pulling the right. airplane the airplane along but that's neither here nor right there can we talk for a second about like the uh i don't know for lack of a better word the belly of the whale scene where the journalist like has a uh, Which implied, one? <laughs> the one where the one where after uh, he storms out on his family in the hospital and goes to Pittsburgh in the middle of the night and um, has a, a psychotic breakdown, a just um, um, and think of it either as a, a breakdown dream, or as a nightmare, dream. yeah, and <laughs> imagines himself in the land of make believe as. Uh, his old childhood toy, old rabbit, right, and has this, uh, um, for lack of a better word, a mystical experience <laughs> with Mister Rogers. Um, I don't know. It just I thought that was uh, a, a, a fascinating move on behalf of the filmmakers, and just like really drilled home, uh, kind of this ha- playing it both ways sort of thing, right? Making it make believe, but also making it extremely real kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just be curious to hear your thoughts about it, like more of what's going on there and what made it effective. It presents a non-traditional interpretation of puppetry as an art, I think. Although it's quite possibly that there, possible that there is a 
theory of puppetry that embraces it to this degree, but it's almost talismanic the way that they, because they are talking about the puppets a bunch in this movie. And I think in those scenes in particular, at one point, Bill, the one of the producer guys says that, you know, he is Daniel Stripey Tiger. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that Mr. Rogers is delusional, but it means that that Mr. Rogers sees the relationship between particularly children and their stuffed animals, their quote unquote special friends as kind of like a tr- a transposition of sorts. Right. The 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 puppet doesn't represent a kind of oversimplified version of a, of a tiger. It's not like I want to play with the puppet because I like the idea of the tiger. I think certain Mr. Roger puppets do this to a greater or lesser degree than others. And it's worth noting that this movie doesn't really dwell on those puppets that are more puppety, like X the Owl uh, or Lady Abigail or uh, Lady Elaine, who are more kind of like extroverted and kind of uh, dynamic physically and kind of have more kind of robotic motion. The sort of the sort of uh, comic duo of um, X the Owl and uh, the cat, the other cat. Right. There's like there's the oh what's the name of the the um, the sort of demure female kind of very very nice and delicate cat that's best friends with X the owl who's very kind of boisterous and extroverted their their play isn't really what's focused on as as the puppetry it's the person regarding the puppet and not seeing in the puppet a kind of icon right a kind of like signifier that may or may not hook directly to a signified and creates a truth by its alienation from the signified but instead is this idea that that the puppet is a sort of um manifestation of an aspect of the person and it's the idea that there's feelings that you can't con- that i mean it's, i guess maybe it's it's a therapy what it is it's therapeutic practice right and to say practice again and, and it probably comes from the sci- child psychologist that partnered with mr rogers for all those years right as i'm talking about it it's like oh yeah it's the show me on the puppet where they hurt you kind of thing right the puppet is a stand-in for the kid and so if the kid can't talk about things that happen to themselves, they could talk about things that happen to the puppet because it, it makes it tolerable by taking it outside of, of your, your own physical body and locating it in a sort of observable object. And you can make a feeling tolerable is the idea by, by, by using the puppet to express it. But what you're really doing is you're expressing it because you're the puppet, right? And in this sense, either because the puppet – I guess represents you, but more because your hand is the hand that's in the puppet and you're the, I mean, you give life to the, to the special friend. Right. Um, and so in this case, him becoming the old rabbit is this idea. There's this sort of idea that, you know, his feelings about old rabbit are really feelings about himself that he can't tolerate. He thinks of himself as an old rabbit, right? Um, in the in the article based on the movies based based on old rabbit is repeatedly chucked out the window of a moving car. Um, although this movie has a different storyline for the magazine writer, very different. Um, but the same sort of idea, right? That um, that what you're doing when you're going to the land of make believe is you're creating a safe environment to express feelings that you otherwise feel very scared or or vulnerable expressing to people, and like that's what the puppet is doing, um, as opposed to the the say what would be a counterexample uh, like Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. Right. Where when you go to where the puppets are, you're going to kind of a magical land where you get to practice 
or even Sesame Street, right? It was Sesame Street. It's the puppets because they're kind of iconic and they have big eyes and big mouths and they're able to communicate information to the kid and engage them and get their attention because the kid is sort of at a certain place of being able to see and understand faces and personalities. Yeah. So and, the, know, like, the, so, and yeah. Yeah, I was, I was really thinking about Sesame Street, like the, the, oh, yeah, go into it. like the, so for Sesame Street, the puppets are, are a means of making sense of the world. Right. Right. Like, and, and for Mr. Rogers, the puppets are a means of, of sort of making sense of yourself. Sherry Lewis is, is a slightly, is a slightly different thing that the puppets are kind of an occasion for, uh, an occasion for fantasy, right. Rather than, rather than kind of, a um, you know, highly displaced, but like only available means of, um, of communicating certain things of, of community. And this is what I was trying to say about allegory or poetic metaphor early in the podcast, that it's a tool that you reach for when, you know, certain things, when you can't convey certain things in a, in a straightforward way, either because they are too raw, they're too threatening, they're too scary, they're too um, kind of tightly wound into human experience. Um, you know, like allegorical tales tend to be like moral or religious stories or, or um, you know, things that, things that have to do with a, a kind of like basic human experience with the, the, um, the kind of dangerous parts of, of experience. And like the, the idea that the puppets, it, the puppet is a part of, you know, that, that, that the puppet is him, or I, I mean, I guess I might've said like a, a part of him, like represents an aspect of, of himself and like becomes a kind of a safe way of, of dealing with that aspect with, you know, with shyness, uh, for example, or with, uh, you know, with sort of, um, you know, with fragility. And I, I, to a certain extent to me, the, the, the painful truth that the film was, was, or the sort of the threatening truth, the, the sort of very basic raw truth that the, the film was, was dealing with is that even, even grownups are children or that there is sort of within you, a, uh, um, you know, uh, there is within you always still a child who, you know, craves to be told that, that they are loved, that he or she is loved, you know, that you're all right, that you're going to be taken care of, that things are going to be okay, that, you know, uh, your parents are going to be, uh, are going to be there for you. And that, that I like you just the way you are. Um, and you know, and that you can sort of see, uh, you can sort of see the the film sort of dramatizes the the failure of that in in the main character's family and uh by giving you know by giving him a son gives it a, a little bit of stakes in terms of like working through this this issue of how do you you know how do you i once you're responsible for the the provision of emotional security to to a new young uh you know vulnerable soul like how how on earth do you do that when you um how on earth do you do that when you have not had that provided to you in a uh, in a reliable way yourself and the you know one of the answers is is daniel stripe a tiger right like one of the answers is like you can kind of find a language uh you can kind of find an expressive and kind of non-literal um way of of talking with and engaging with uh these ideas um if if you uh if like if you can displace parts of your 
um, if you can displace kind of parts of your vulnerability onto uh, onto things outside of you, and it it is uh, sort of it is sort of interesting. It's interesting to see, right? Like, and there are there are really again, like I, you know, I want to go to the the cynical, like the cynical bad version is the Richard Dreyfus character in What About Bob. Uh, who, who has, do you recall this? He's created, um, puppet versions of himself, his wife and all of his children and like makes them all, uh, makes them all like have family conversations using the puppets, um, because it's, it's less threatening. Like this is the terrible, uh, version of, of doing that. But, uh, in, in won't you be my neighbor? It's, I don't know. It's like, it's vital because you kind of see the, the desperation, right. That, 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 uh, you see the necessity that is the mother of that particular invention. And, um, yeah. And there, there, it, uh, uh, there it is. Yeah. The, the thing with the Richard Dreyfuss character and what about Bob is that he, the issue in the family is that he, won't give up control of things that are happening. Yeah. And the irony of him attempting to negotiate everybody's feelings by using these puppet techniques that he came up with and he controls, right. Is, is, is ridiculous, right. It's that, uh, you know, he's the one proposed. If, if the kid had proposed it and what about Bob, it might've come along, come out a little bit differently. But when it's the dad, you know, who's already very callous and kind of comically. So, I mean, he, he's a farcical character too, but, but yeah, you know, you're totally, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down on that, that this is this whole idea that, that, that adults are children and, that you don't you don't ever really become anyone. You are someone, and at any given time, you know you you are the person that you are. I, I think that there is a there's something in there that I confront you know with the possibility uh, you know in, in the upcoming reality of of raising kids myself. This idea that I've that I've wrestle with in terms of how I was raised, which is like, how do you teach kids things that you then have to teach them to unlearn later? Right. Like, um, which I think maybe speaks to a deeper and more troublesome truth, like what you're talking about, right? Like, um, you know, teach, how do you teach a kid to be both creative and also utterly compliant to you? Right. Like, how do you like, I want my kid to be an independent and strong and like not scared of people. And I also want them to do everything I say. Right? Like um, and this idea that the kid is going to become the person that you that you think that it is in the interest of the kid and that you because you love the kid, you want the kid to become. But but what the kid is right and who the kid is, is something that they can't coexist with that idea of who the kid will be. And that once we all grow up. We all end up being, to a large extent, you know, the the kid, right? The the not not the thing that we were supposed to become, but the thing that we were when we were doing the becoming, um, and and that that's kind of the horror of it, because it's not what the parents want, right? Um, I mean, I guess one of the the many occasions to cry in this movie is the whole repudiation of his entire adult life as a parent that the father figure gives in, in quite a fantasy, right? Like what, what a conversation that is for, for that person to hear just a total and complete apology, uh, just utterly vulnerable apology for everything that he's done and, and admitting that he never knew how to live right until right before he died. Um, I mean, in certain ways, this is kind of a high drama, 
with with a little bit of a detachment from the the stakes of of uh, real life conversations and as you know escalated for for speed and whatnot. Um, but like the father is just a kid too, and that's kind of the horrifying thing. And then and then the and the question then is well then what is Mister Rogers right? And and the answer is. Uh, well, this is a, not a biopic where we're going. This isn't a, like a Johnny Depp, Charlie and the Charlie the Chocolate Factory, where we're going to hash out all the dark underbelly of yeah, who this guy was or answer all the unanswered questions. Um, the reality is he was shy <laughs> and he didn't talk about this sort of thing. And so for us to make it up would be uh, not accurate to anyone's experience of him. Um, and certainly not anyone who's willing to talk about it. So to to uh... Uh, so a lot of things I wanted to, to address here, and what you just said, Pete. So just to very quickly touch on uh, that contradiction earlier you said about um, uh, wanting your kid to be creative while also be totally compliant at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's I'm exaggerating, Francis. I know. I, I, yeah. yeah, but just to address that very quickly, it's like um, the more charitable way to think about that is like you provide um, security and a safe space in order for the kid to be creative, right? And then eventually you kind of like ease out that um, that uh, th- those training wheels so that they can do so uh, independently uh, and on their own terms. Um, so that, that's that's one way to think about that. But to address what you just said there about what is Mr. Rogers' role in all of this um, family melodrama that you see being played out, right, where the um, you know everybody is kind of brought to redemption uh, by the end of it, um, it, I saw it as him playing the role of essentially divine intervention, which is ironic because earlier we said how this is a, a dehagiographication of Mr. Rogers and kind of going out of his way to show him as not being a saint and him having, you know, paying the price of, um, of all the grace that he bestows upon the world. And yet we see very directly all the grace that he bestows upon the world. And like, you know, this is um, very in line with Mr. Rogers' religious philosophy and the fact that he was an ordained minister as well too. Right. Um, I mean, is that too simple to say that he was, uh, that we see kind of, for lack of a better word, God's love present in the world as made manifest by Mr. Rogers. I don't know if I would go. I, I, I hear where you're coming from, and and I and I'm seeing the general environment of it. But I want I want to like in, not interrogate that, but but complicate it a little bit. I know it seems it doesn't. It's not in keeping with everything else we just talked about. It's just well, like, yeah. This is also not like an explicitly Christian movie where. Right. Uh, you know, he has like a little angel on his on his shoulder, like a halo uh, on him, and like you know, there's no, like, well, the uh, one of the characters was a crucifix uh, uh, cross, but it's it's absent of like very explicitly Christian symbols yeah. along those I, lines. I mean, one of the big points, which was another point that was in the article too, is is that whole idea of somebody who's been going through all the tough things that this person has been going through. I want them to pray for me because they're close to God, right? And that's one of the the things that the movie, one of the big moments in the movie is this idea of like, you're suffering. You know, I'm going to, instead of saying, I'm going to pray for you, I want to ask you to pray for me. And in the article, it goes into it in a little more detail. And I think the movie communicates it kind of subtextually. The idea that this can be hugely liberating because people who are accustomed to uh, being the problem, Right. And, and and having other people kind of pity them and having other people uh, kind of like wait for them to be better or like not do things with them that they would want are, are freed from that a little bit by the idea that they are important to helping somebody else. 
In fact, somebody who seems to have all of their everything together, right? Somebody who seems to be very well off and well and well established and and happy and kind of situated and matured, you know, uh, you know, oh, they need my help, and then that in some way frees you somewhat from that kind of internalization of the notion that you're always a problem to everybody. Um, but then Mr. Rogers is like, well, no, I really do think that that person could help me. And the idea that those two things, those two ideas aren't really contrary to each other. Um, it, it does have to do with this idea of grace, but I would also say that it's not like a, it's not an idea of a kind of dualist. It's not a sort of strictly dualist approach to uh, divine love in which it exists like entirely separate from the love that's happening in the world, right? Like the phenomena that are observable here from both the sort of subjective and sort of general uh, framework are like explicable human phenomena. Like they can happen in the real world and that their agency is attributed to God is, um, I mean, for one, it says interesting things about the idea of what God is in the world, right? If God isn't necessarily like a big a puppet master, right? I mean, think about it that way, right? If if we are not puppets to God, but, you know, puppets, uh, if puppets are to people as people are to God, then in this case, you know, the people are kind of part of and participating in the Godhead um, in that respect, right? Like they are part of the grace. They are part of the love. The love that they show each other is not different from the love that— um, that God shows them. Um, and it's it's interspersed with this idea that if everybody is the child, then who is the parent? And if a lot, and if, especially if you're older and your parents have passed, who are your parents? And and this and this idea that everybody kind of needs this this acceptance from a parental figure. But even more than the sort of Freudian psychodrama of it, it's like everybody has that vulnerability, and there's really only one sort of thing that can deal with it, which is this feeling of being loved and understood and cared for, and and that this this feeling sort of extrapolates to the broader world, that like everybody kind of needs the broader world to care about them. Um it create there's an interesting theology there, right? In terms of like what's the relationship between the world and God philosophically. Um, and, uh, and, and the notion of like, if you're locating this, this sort of praying in this sort of, if you're locating it, not with sort of grand cosmic narratives of like, you know, Manichaean clashes between, you know, the spirit that is good and the flesh that is bitter and evil, and are instead locating it in kind of like the, the intimate moments of like people confronting pain. Um, it, it, you sort of hear what I'm saying? Like, like the idea that like God could be a character in the movie, uh, stops, which, which is a silly sentence to say, right? But you have to get to an understanding of the way that faith is functioning in the movie that makes that proposal silly in order for it to really kind of intuitively make sense. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? I'm trying, I'm spinning my wheels on this a little bit because it really is pretty mysterious and challenging, but feels pretty intuitive to the experience of kind of confronting these kind of vast undealable with facts. Although he says that they're mentionable and if they're mentionable, they can be managed. So maybe they aren't undealable at all. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Right? I mean, well, yeah, it's funny. He's, he's talking there about not, not about sort of cosmic truths. He's actually talking about like the, the, um, the lived experience of deal of, of death and dying there. Cause he's sitting around with Chris Cooper in his sick bed and, you know, the family sort of gathered, gathered around him and they're talking about, uh, what, what a challenge, 
what a challenge death is, like what a challenge it is to be sick and to know you're going to die and what a challenge it is for people to, uh, to, for people to experience it. And like, it's very, you know, it's very, uh, I don't know, one of the, one of the particular geniuses he had as a communicator and like what he, he was among other things, like a great communicator. And like, you know, to Mark's point earlier, like just, just as, you know, I don't know that just as certain breakthrough businesses tend to like monopolize a medium of like marketing, monopolize it, a channel of marketing, the same, the way that like J crew mastered catalogs, you know, or, or Sears Roebuck, I suppose earlier, or like, uh, Nike mastered the television ad, you know, or Coca-Cola, maybe like brand advertisers master the, the sort of television ad. And, and you, you can sort of think of him as a, as a master, uh, communicator and a master of the, the sort of medium. And like one of the things, one of the qualities that, that makes him, I think a master of the medium is that he always spoke in very, uh, in very concrete terms, Right. In, in terms of uh, like primary colors and sort of very basic experiences. Like, I like you, I like you just the way you are and not like, you know, there is a Manichaean struggle of, of yeah. good, <laughs> right. Of good against evil. He, we, he'd be a terrible over that. You know what? Here's my hot take. Mr. Rogers is a terrible overthinker. Um, that, uh, right. That like, uh, and, and so when, even when he's talking about, about the things that we might think of as sort of religious or philosophical or kind of cosmic truths, he brings them, he brings them down to kind of like the basic, uh, you know, the basic sort of four emotions, right? Like happy, sad, anger, fear, uh, or maybe six emotions, happy, sad, anger, fear, pride, shame, um, that that like uh that are just the the primary colors that that emotional experience are um are built out of so he's not talking about uh he's not talking about like the cosmic meaning of death he's talking about sort of the terror um the terror of loss you know and he's he's talking about this sort of he's talking about fear and he's talking about sadness you know uh in a um, in a particular, uh, in a particular concrete way, I, there's, there's something that he says about like when, when, he, what, what is it about the people who are going through hard things that make it, um, that make them sort of close to that, that make them close to God and Mr. Rogers sort of, uh, in, in the, uh, Rogerian cosmology, right? Now the, the, the easy answer is that Chris Cooper is about to die, that that character is, you know, going to die imminently. And like, he's going to, to, so he's close to God in that sense, because he's about to sort of enter the next world. I think there may be, I think there may be something more to it than that, you know, sort of suffering, um, has a way of, of stripping away, uh, artifice, you know, and stripping away a lot of the superstructures that, that we put on to kind of manage, um, uh, a lot of the superstructures that we put on to, to, to sort of manage the, the, um, 
huge emotional experiences that kids have and, and that we have, but that we have, you know, tools, tools for managing. I mean, I, you know, and, and sorry, there's a brief digression. If everyone's a child, then who are the parents? Well, the parents are the children who have, who've not grown, who have grown up in the sense that they have learned to self provide, you know, uh, the kind of, the kind of steadiness and, um, you know, the kind of, of care that, uh, children have no capacity to provide like an, an infant, a newborn completely helpless. And the story of growing up is the story of, you know, uh, being able to kind of self-regulate, being able to, to do self-care, to sort of self-soothe, to, to provide, you know, a sense of, of steadiness. And like, if you, if you imagine people that, you know, who have sort of flipped, right. Who have like, had a bad like had a bad day and like mouthed off or like really like behaved in some you know in some way we sort of call it childish a lot of the times we call it like and and what you're encountering there is is you're encountering an adult who is who is temporarily lost the ability to to manage um to sort of self self provide to kind of self parent you know and uh it's for a lot of us it's a lot closer to the surface than, than, you know, than we like to think. And, and in, in a way that is not really mysterious, right? Like, um, experiences of pain, experiences of loss of suffering, experiences that sort of strip you down to your essence, um, might make you more, might make your experience a little more basic might make might might make your experience a little less intellectualized or rationalized and a little more kind of stripped down to the primary colors and that in 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 that sense you're sort of closer to god because you're closer to a direct um you're you're closer to kind of a direct encounter with who you are rather than you know, uh, uh, rather than all the kinds of stories and all, all the sorts of yeah. displacements and abstractions that you might use to, to manage that on a day-to-day basis. Right. So, so in the idealized sort of, um, uh, uh, practice of Mr. Rogers philosophy, right. Those moments of hardship are opportunities to get closer to each other and, uh, and get closer to God. Right. And that's what we see, of course, played out in this movie um not to say you know and it doesn't paper over the hard hard stuff it just says like okay let's take these opportunities and 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 you know like these these lemons let's make some lemonade um and, and that's like, and the great but, thing about the movie is that it's not an effing hallmark card right it's like yeah, i know it's it incredible, strips right? your skin off and it rips your heart out and yet like to the extent that you can behave mercifully like y- you ought to because it it does it does make things better yeah and so that brings us to the current Mr. Rogers and his uh, right? With the, the documentary from last year and then this movie as well. I think it's safe to say that the reason why Mr. Rogers is so back into the discourse is because uh, of the discourse, the broader discourse and how it's gotten so bad and toxic and, you know, trolls online and everybody being mean to each other and Trump and this, that and the other. Um, I'm going to I'm going to bring up one uh, anecdote recently that kind of really sums this all up. And it's actually from the follow-on article written uh, within the last year, uh, maybe in the last few months or so, of the original author of the of the piece that inspired this movie. He refers to a, a, a moment where some 
uh, you know, Trump aligned public person actually went to a screening of the documentary and was heckled and verbally abused by protesters who dare to uh, invoke Mr. Rogers name and say, like, you know, what would Mr. Rogers do? Would Mr. Rogers uh, separate people, the children from the border, would, would children from their parents from the border? Would Mr. Rogers um, uh, would Mr. Rogers deprive children of their health care? This, that, and the other. And that, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, in addition to those sorts of words, her abuse and uh, and shame at, uh, at at this public individual is just trying to go out to see a movie. Um, the article frames this as like, oh, this is you know part of the breakdown of quote unquote civility and and laments it without lamenting, um, w- without giving excuse to those sorts of public positions, but uses that as a way of saying broadly speaking, um, the legacy of Mr. Rogers, uh, unfortunately, is that like it, it, it not so much of, of defeat per se, but like that vision, his vision of life and living with each other didn't play out, and we are, are through the through the other side and. In a darker place, one that Mr. Rogers uh, would not have approved of. Um, so here we are, right? We've just seen this movie. You know, we live in in 2019. Um, is it fair to say that this uh, this movie is in dialogue then with current events and the current discourse? Oh God, do you have another hour? <laughs> what do you think uh, this is, Matt? The best of both worlds. Part one? <laughs> <laughs> Just talk about a single thing for two hours. Anti-Trump, Peter. Anti-Trump. <laughs> oh God, why, why, why does he, why does he invade even our our soft, tender moments of friendship and and high regard, high regard for one another? Um, I, the the here's the the short answer if if you invoke mr rogers as sort of a cudgel you're doing it wrong and uh you know i i think as as inconvenient as it it would be i'll bet he would be reliably on the side of treating individual people with respect in in the moment and sort of dealing with what makes them <laughs> you know uh i th- i think he he would sort of point out that that uh hurt people hurt people and that you know dealing with the the hurt in the moment is actually probably um closer to his his list of priorities than than you know heckling or or shaming someone in the moment yeah. i think that also the the issue part of part of the issue here is is seeing the public discourse on this level as the reality of life which even if it feels that way isn't necessarily the case um it, like for example what share of the meaningful conversations that you have in a given day are conversations that are online. It might be very, very high, right? Um, it might be, you know, 90, I can think of days where like 95% of what I've said to another human being has been online. Uh, life, I think of whole months of, you know, years of my life where I've been more or less alone uh, in, and been con- conferring with people over the phone and over email and stuff. Um, that's not, that's not a way to live. Right. Like like if Mr. Rogers philosophy breaks down when the way that people relate to each other is primarily and almost exclusively through sort of many to many public or electronic interchanges, then like there's a much bigger problem that's happening than just whether any given person is being nice to children. Right. 
like the whole framework of how people relate to each other is damaged if if you're not personally connecting to anybody uh, if you're not able to have intimate conversations right like if if and 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 I don't necessarily think that that means that say the political technologies themselves are things that you you should uh, abstain from using if you find them to be necessary or expedient to accomplish things that you care about but more like well look at what else is in your life and do you have these moments of intimacy to talk about things that matter to you that might be painful, difficult, or impossible to speak about in public? Um, and that's, that's, that's the challenge of kind of speaking to only one person. And you're not going to do that through Twitter, right? You're just not because it's not a one-to-one platform, right? It's, it's a many-to-many platform. Which is um, ironic because so, you know, that that's – that was television too, right? <laughs> and many, many yeah. platform. And yet, Mister Rogers, through his you know uh, particular unique methods, was able to uh, do that as well as the other thing at the same time. And and that's exactly I mean, what yeah. we do on the Overthinking It podcast: is we follow you around, whispering in your <laughs> ear as you get on the subway, as you go into work, as you just wander about, walking the dog, taking out the trash, doing errands, whatever you do. You are the only overthinking it listener who's like you. And uh, we like you just the way you are. As long as you visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, <laughs> where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Hi, Tony. I'm Nick Fury. No, I've heard of you. You're very a very impressive guy. I like that eye patch that you're wearing. It's both intimidating and personal. No, I, I appreciate that. And I'm putting together a special team. A special team. Yes. And you're special, Tony Stark. <laughs> you're special just the way you are, and I want you to be on my special team. Would you like to be on my special team? I'm I'm not you must have me mistaken for someone else. I, I can't possibly. It's like, Tony, we all see what you do and we appreciate it, especially the flying metal suit that you use to blow up terrorists. <laughs> and I just want to say that it's meant a lot to us what you've done. And if you would join the Avengers, I think you would experience an environment where each of us appreciate each other as individuals, you know, and also are able to do things to kind of really help people. People who need it all over the world. It's like, wow. Um, do do uh, do do I get to drive an Audi R8? It's like, well, you like cars? You like fancy cars? You like flying spacesuits? You like flying aircraft carriers? Here, let me put this VHS tape about how they make flying aircraft carriers, and we'll watch it in the picture picture. <laughs> See, I was I, I was going to go straight to, you're not my dad, Nick Fury. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't know what I'm about, man. <laughs> Old man. Okay, boomer. <laughs> I, I, I would like to join the Avengers, too, but I'm afraid you won't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> it's okay, Daniel Stripey Hulk. Everyone's angry.
Always. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a strange after credit scene in this film, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 